good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Exodus chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning, really looking at verses 16 through 19. We're concluding our first cycle, if you will, of the plagues. Uh, as Blake mentioned, as he, as he preached through the first plague, that is the plague of blood, he mentioned that there are three cycles, and then there is a loud conclusion that we find in the final plague, the death of the firstborn sons. But as we look at this particular plague this morning, there's a couple of things that I really want us to understand. There has been progression in the symbolics of the first three plagues. And just to give you the two that, that we've already walked through. First, the blood has, been, has very clearly laid out to us sin and death that is the result of sin. The reason that the blood is so clear and the reason that it is so loud, even in our minds to this very day, is because it is an indictment. It is a, it is a proclamation by God that sin, especially the sin of Egypt in this particular circumstance, the killing of the sons of Israel, that God will hold it to account, that God is one who does forgive sin, trespass, and iniquity, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And so there is an indictment laid against Egypt in the Nile turning to blood. And in the second plague, as we examine the frogs, there is this proclamation that it is not just pieces and parts of Egypt that are unclean. Instead, is a proclamation that the entirety of Egypt is unclean, whether it be Pharaoh or whether it be the maidservant. It doesn't matter if it's in the fields or or if it's in the temples and the palaces. It is rega- regardless of that, that the whole land has essentially been declared unclean. Now, the interesting thing about this progression is the final one, and I'm convinced the loudest one and the, and the greatest proclamation of God's power is ultimately going to be displayed in this third plague as we're walking through the first set. And the primary way this is done is by making the mouths of the magicians confess that they are totally incapable of performing the signs and miracles in one that the true and living God is performing in the land in this particular moment. And so today what we'll ultimately see is we will see the crescendo of the symbolics of the first three plagues ending in the concept of dust. We'll see the proclamation of the magician saying that this is surely the finger of God. And then by the end of the sermon, Lord willing, we will find ourselves looking at the Lord Jesus Christ and him fulfilling the concept of this is the finger of God. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 16, making our way through verse 19. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Let's pray together. Father, may we be reminded in this moment, in this day, that you are the only one who possesses power. 
Lord, that any time we see it expressed, any time that we move our legs, it is because you have granted such power, that you are in control of every atom, that you are the ultimate authority. And Father, when you say signs cease, they cease. And Father, oh, to hear the pagan magicians confess, this is the finger of God. Lord, how much more so should the hearts of your people proclaim over and over and over again the power of our God to deliver and to save? And so, Father, I ask, would you help us to behold these things? Would you help us to see Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of such a wonderful proclamation? And Lord, would you remind us of his sufficiency this day? It's in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing that I'd like to do is really break this up into two major points. The first is this, the plague, its substance and meaning. I want to really build out like what exactly are we looking at when we're looking at this particular plague. And I'll tell you that one of the more unique things about this third sign is the plague in and of itself. What is produced and that which plagues the people is not the centerpiece of this plague. Instead, it is the profession of the magicians that the conclusion, the movement from the first to the second to the third plague is an indication of the power of the Egyptian magicians and the third plague is an indictment on their inability. It is essentially a proclamation that they have claimed power, but really they possess none in and of themselves. And so that being the said, let's look at what led us to this plague. So the first thing that we'll look at is the substance and meaning. The events that led us to this plague are threefold. First, the previous two plagues in, the, in this first of three movements have come and gone. That the proclamations have been made, the indictments been made against Egypt, that they are sinful, that there is death on the horizon that blood is what they have shed and blood is what will be required of them. That as you make your way into the second plague, they have been plagued quite literally by an endless number of frogs going into each and every area and sphere of the Egyptian life. That there is this grand proclamation that they are unclean, their uncleanness and their death ultimately leaves a stench in the nostrils of God that he has made that abundantly clear. But as we move into this particular plague, we notice that there is no interaction between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Just notice what it says in contrast to the previous two plagues. In verse 16, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand. If you go back to the second and the first plague, you'll notice that God has commanded in those two occurrences, Moses to go to Pharaoh and essentially to make a proclamation to Pharaoh that you must let the people of Israel go. In the second plague, looking at chapter eight, verse one, it says this, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord. You will notice as we enter into the third plague, the sixth plague, and the ninth plague, there is no interaction between Moses and Pharaoh. Instead, it is God simply demonstrating his right and then his execution of justice on the land of Egypt. And so you'll notice that there is no interaction between Moses and Pharaoh. There's no proclamation that a plague is ultimately coming. Instead, God simply takes it upon himself to act judiciously, that is to say, to judge the people of Egypt. And a couple of things that we should take from this. First, God has no right or no responsibility to demand something from Pharaoh before he exercises judgment. There's no responsibility in God to not judge until he's made a simple proclamation. Instead, he has absolute right to simply demonstrate his justice and to, and to conquer and to plague the land of Egypt based upon his own will and ultimately based upon the fact that they are worthy of such judgment. 
It's really easy for us as we, can, as we read through this plague narrative to look at plague one and plague two and then get to plague three and it's like, well, God didn't ultimately say anything to Pharaoh. He didn't command Pharaoh to let the people go and he didn't warn Pharaoh that it was coming. And so is God acting appropriately here? Brothers and sisters, God is always acting appropriately. And as God is always acting appropriately, the reason that he demonstrates justice and the reason that he plagues the land just based upon his sovereign will is because he is the judge of all the earth and he will do what is right. And so as we see him demonstrate this plague, as we see him promise, it and as we see it perform it, we are watching the just God of all the earth do what is right. He is demonstrating his power and his authority so as to stay the mouths, in this particular case, of the Egyptian magicians. And so we see the reason that we are at this moment in the plagues is because Pharaoh has continued his disobedience. He has refused to let the people of Israel go. Not only has he refused to let the people of Israel go, he has promised and now lied and changed his mind, if you will, on the other side of his deceit and said, I will not let the people go. Originally, if you look at the plagues of the frogs, he says, I'll let them go. And then by the conclusion, when God grants respite, that is to say, when God relieves the condition of Egypt and allows the frogs to die in the land, uh, Pharaoh then says, well, now I won't let them go. He takes the mercy of God for granted and hardens his heart all the more. So that leads us to the plague itself. What does this plague entail? This plague entails gnats upon every man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. One of the most hotly debated portions of this text is what's a gnat? I read more about what a gnat is throughout this week and there is a great debate and the great debate really falls into the category of does this word demand wings? And if it demands wings, then we would take gnats not to be just some fruit gnat or something of that nature that would just be all throughout the land. Instead, the concept is that it is a biting insect that you're not looking at just a gnat that's flying around the land. You're looking at something that would have caused actual harm, that it would have damaged the people of Israel uniquely. And the great debate really comes down to if it has wings or not. If it comes down to if it has wings, then everyone says, oh, well, then it's mosquitoes. We all understand the plague of mosquitoes that it would be incredibly burdensome throughout the entire land for there to be a multiplicity of mosquitoes running throughout. And the other one, if it does not have wings, would be lice. It really doesn't matter where we fall in this. We understand this to be quite the plague. That if it's lice running throughout the land and plaguing all the Egyptians, then they would feel a great deal of burden and weight and certainly a demonstration again of their own uncleanness. If it's mosquitoes, then they are regularly bothered by insects that they can do nothing about and they are being bit over and over and over again. The simple demonstration of this is God is going to cause discomfort and harm in all the land of Egypt. He's going to plague them and plague them uniquely, either with mosquitoes, if it be a flying insect, or lice, if it does not have wings. And so the simple The simplest form to demonstrate this plague is to say that God is plaguing the land with bothersome and harmful insects. He's filling the land with that. Now, that's the simplest way to think about it, but I think most importantly, we need to ask the question, what does this plague communicate? Because you'll notice that there really is not a whole lot around this text. It's the briefest section that we've had so far. If you look at the blood, there's a lot of narrative around the Nile being turned to blood. Even the concept of the second plague with the frogs, there's a great deal of narrative around the concept of the frogs. But when you get to this section, we're looking at three verses. Why is it that this is such an abbreviated section of the plagues? And I'm convinced it's this. God's primary point in recording this plague is not first and foremost to draw your attention to the actual plague. It's really a sub point in the text. 
He wants us to know that the third plague has come. He wants us to know that he is exercising his judgment upon the nation of Egypt yet again. But it seems as though his primary purpose is to demonstrate that he has all authority in heaven and on earth and that he is going to silence all of his enemies and that he is laying before the people a demonstration of his power and authority yet again. And so I want to look at really four major truths that we find demonstrated from this plague. And so first, first, much like the first two plagues, God claims dominion over the dry land. You notice the language, it's rather similar to what we find in the first plague where God tells Moses and Aaron to reach out their, to, to reach out their hand and strike the water with the staff. It's echoed here in the third that in that particular play, God is demonstrating his authority over the waters. The waters will do each and everything that God commands him to do. If he commands that the waters change on a structural level to blood, then the waters will change on a structural level to blood. That they will no longer be waters. God has absolute right and authority to speak to nothing and create something. He has very little difficulty in speaking to water and demanding it that it would turn to blood. It matters not if it be the Nile or if it be in the vases in their homes. And so the waters do as he commanded. And then we go a bit further in side of our narrative, and the creatures of the waters do everything that the Lord commands. When we look at the simple plague of the frogs, one of the things that we need to take into account is that frogs are not traditionally a household pest. They do everything in their power really to avoid humans. We can find them outside most certainly, but they, ra- they rarely make their way into homes. And what we find in that second plague is God again demonstrating his authority, not just over the waters, but going a bit higher and demonstrating his authority over the creatures of the waters. And then we make our way into this third plague and God does a very similar act that we find in the first, demonstrating that he alone has power and authority over the dry land, that he alone is authoritative, that he is its creator. And since he is its creator, it will do anything that he commands it to do. And so when God looks at the dust of the earth and said, you become a living being, we say, yes and amen. That the dust itself that has no will or volition in and of itself will obey the voice of the omniscient, omnipotent God. Something that lacks will, lacks power, lacks authority. When it hears the voice of the all authoritative God, it simply obeys uncontested. And so we watch as the dust of the earth is claimed by God. But secondly, in the midst of this plague, we see that God demonstrates his power as he creates living creatures from the dust. And I want to be really explicit here, because as you work through the plague narrative, you can find ample historians that will do everything in their power to essentially demiraculize the plagues. That they'll look at it and say, okay, well, here's the the events that led to a great deal of mosquitoes or lice in the land of Egypt. But I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, you cannot square that with the pages of Scripture. Listen to what this text actually says. In verse 16, it says, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Notice what it does not say. It doesn't say that the gnats came from the dust. I have read more commentaries where people are saying, ah, the gnats were hiding deep in the dust. Brothers and sisters, it is a plague that goes throughout the land of Egypt and the text is explicit. They are not creeping their way out of the dust of the ground. The dust of the ground is becoming gnats. That the little tiny fibers of the earth are being molded into living 
living creatures. Secondly, it is not a statement demonstrating the way in which the gnats were upon the earth. This text does not say the gnats became like dust so as to say that they are covering the face of the land. This text is uniquely explicit, making it clear that you cannot look at the Bible and say, okay, well, gnats somehow then came upon the earth. The text makes it clear that God takes the dust of the earth and that he creates them. He molds them into living beings. The text is explicit. God makes from the dust of the earth gnats. When we look at the first sign going back to the staff turning into serpents, we come in presuming that the staff, the serpent that came from the staff had a stomach. You get that, right? Like we presuppose that because the reality is that the serpent ate the staffs, ate the other serpents. And we assume that as it ate it, there was actually a stomach. There was actually fangs. There was something to consume those staffs, those other serpents. We, we recognize the fact that God literally did turn a staff into a serpent and made it an actual serpent. Or then we go further and we recognize the fact that the blood-drenched Nile was actually filled not just with a red dye, but if you were to do an actual examination of it, you would find red and white blood cells. You would actually see the structure of blood. There would be plasma and platelets if you were to do an examination of it. It, in all of its ways, actually became blood. And as we come to this sign, God is demonstrating yet again that he has the authority to take dust and form from that dust wings, eyes, mouth for biting, stomach for consuming that which is bitten, and to plague the entirety of the land. It is really interesting to me that we try to find ways to explain away the supernatural. Scripture is abundantly clear here. God took the inanimate dust of the ground, made it a living creature. And as he made it a living creature, he did not just give it wings and mouth and exoskeletons. He gave it instinct and desire to go and to plague the land of Egypt, that he literally formed and crafted them for the particular purpose of going into Egypt and formed in them the instinct and desire to go and to bite and to consume the people of the land of Egypt. And so we see quite clearly God has the ability to create life from nothing. Now, you perhaps will recognize, if you pay close attention to this text, listen to what it says again in verse 17. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. That is to say that as he struck the dust of the earth, the dust became a living being. Does this cause any, does it, does it, do you connect this to anywhere else in the pages of sacred scripture? Is there another point in which God creates from dust a living being? And I think instantly you would draw attention to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, very similar sentence structure, and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Essentially what, that, what I'm arguing here is that the means of creating these gnats hearken back to the creation account, reminding us that God alone is the creator of life. He is the one who has the actual ability to create a life, a sustaining life, and allow it to exist inside of the world. And so we see God demonstrate this by hearkening the mind back to the very same imagery that we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The gnats were created from the dust of the ground the very same way Adam was. He has the power and authority to create life. He has the dominion. Only he has the dominion to do that. And so we see it harkens back to the creation account demonstrating that he alone has the power and authority to do this. But we also see that dust is not left in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It moves its way forward. So I would argue that the creation of the gnats from dust reminds us not only of God's power to create, but it also reminds us of his curse. 
And again, if we could follow the simple trajectory of the first three plagues, sin and death, uncleanness, curse. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Dust is indicative, if it were, as for the diet of Satan himself. Dust you shall eat of it all the days of his life. He very clearly correlates the curse with the dust of the ground. Going forward in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God curses the ground itself. Genesis 3, 17 through 18 says this, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You'll notice again in our text that he strikes the ground and the dust turns to the earth or turns to gnats. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And so you notice that both, just, just in these two simple ones, you've got Satan who is ultimately cursed, and as he is cursed, God essentially gives him the diet of the dust of the earth. He curses the ground uh, because of the sin of Adam. And then lastly, he curses Adam. And the way that he curses Adam is as, as follows. Genesis three nineteen: By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The, heart, the, the way in which this is structured is meant to, I am convinced, meant to draw our attention back to the creation account. And not just the creation account, but the, the account of the curse as well. The concept of dust, even if you think about it from the perspective of just Genesis 1, 2, and 3, dust begins with the concept of life. That God takes the dust of the ground and forms Adam from it. By the time that we conclude the creation account, dust is not centralized on life. Dust is centralized on curse. That the serpent will eat it all of his days because he is cursed. That the ground itself is cursed. And we remember that we are dust and to dust we shall return. That this plague is meant to hearken our minds back to the fact that God alone has right of creation, but secondarily that God alone has the right of cursing. And it is to remind, I am convinced, Satan and Pharaoh of their ultimate end. And so what do we find here? So first, in this, Pharaoh is being reminded of his humanity and that he will return to dust. Remember, brothers and sisters, that Pharaoh, we cannot treat him as if he is just a general, simple man. Pharaoh is a man that has claimed deity time and time and time again. And in this rather simple plague, there is a proclamation over all the land of Egypt that the dust itself is communicating to you again in living fashion that to dust you shall return. Pharaoh will not live endlessly. Pharaoh will indeed return to dust. That there is this proclamation of curse over the land. Secondly, Satan is being triumphed over and shamed, that there is a reminder, if you will, of Satan's intended diet. That as God is turning the, the dust to gnats, there is a proclamation that his diet is being set before you and dust you shall eat. All throughout, brothers and sisters, all throughout the Old Testament, there is a refrain of the shaming of Satan. Throughout all of redemptive history, there are these little defeats that Satan endures up until the point we reach the crescendo. And I'm convinced that what we have in this final and third plague is a reminder of the reality that you are already a defeated foe. I've told you that you will eat of dust all the days of your life. Here's a reminder of the dust that you will eat. And I will show you yet again of the fact that you will not succeed. You will not conquer. Instead, 
you will be conquered. He is being, he is being shamed and he is being reminded of his ultimate end. That ultimate end we find in Revelation 12, 9 through 10. It says this, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brother has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That is, God plagues the land of Egypt. He is plaguing them with a loud reminder to the demonic forces behind their captivity. He is reminding him that he will ultimately be defeated. And not only will he be defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ, there is through the Lord Jesus Christ victory, a reality that the church itself will continue to be triumphant over him. Romans chapter 16, verse 20, that sweet verse that we find at the conclusion of that book, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with you. There is a reminder and a proclamation in this conclusion of the first cycle that Satan will not be triumphant, that the enemies of God will not stand. And in conclusion, every boot out of Egypt pronounces Satan's failures and God's successes. So it is in the greater Exodus. Every boot that treads heaven's shores treads first across the head of the Christ-defeated serpent that in God's proclamation and promise of deliverance, he is making it known that my people will make their way out. And when they make their way out, every single boot that touches Canaan is loudly proclaiming that you have been defeated. But we must remember, brothers and sisters, that this is not the final blow dealt to Satan. It is a promise. It is a demonstration that God alone has the power. But in the end, the final blow will be dealt by the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he deals that final blow, as he crushes Satan's head, it is clear from that point forward that he has only and will only ever eat the dust of the ground. And from that point forward, every single Christian will cross the head of Satan by the grace of God and enter into paradise. That this is a demonstration yet again of the fact that God will be victorious and Satan will be conquered. And then finally, we must understand that in this plague, we see a promise that God is faithful. I want to hearken back to Genesis chapter 12 just for a moment. Genesis chapter 12, and we need to remember the fact that as we're looking at the Exodus account, what we're looking at is the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Abraham. And as we see this, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. God is demonstrating his fidelity yet again to Abram. He is demonstrating that all of his promises will indeed come to fruition. And as the Egyptians have plagued and dishonored the people of Israel, God is reminding them that God is faithful, that he will curse those who dishonor Israel. And so we see this grand demonstration of the curse played out being brought again to fruition. So you'll notice that there is a, a, a symbolic escalation, if you will, of sin and its consequence of uncleanness. And then finally, God's cursing of that sin and death and uncleanness. And there is this loud proclamation over all the land of Egypt that it is sinful, that it is unclean, and that it is a cursed land. And so then we move forward in this, in this proclamation of the curse over the land, and then we move into the magician's attempt. My point here is the magician's tried, which I think is rather comedic, and it's intended to be comedic, because as the magicians go to perform the very same signs that they have demonstrated over and over and over again, they then are left helpless, incapable of performing the same sign. Notice what it says in verse 18. 
It says this, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So let's ask a question before we get into this one. Why have the magicians been so diligent to perform similar signs of the plagues? Why have they worked so hard to be able to produce something similar to that which the whole land of Egypt is seeing? And I just want to give two major reasons. First, because in doing so, they could, they could continue to claim a semblance of power in their gods. They could have essentially said, yes, we see that the true that the God of Israel is capable of these things, but we say in the same breath that our gods are capable of doing these things as well. And again, we take into account the fact that seemingly according to the text, these magicians were actually performing signs. It's not trickery. It's not sleight of hand. I think it's rather clear that they are actually performing these things. And so they say, so long as we're able to turn even a little bowl of water to blood, so long as we're able to see our staves turn to serpents, and so long as we're able to summon a few frogs, then we can continue to claim that there is actual power in our deities and our lesser false gods. And so they long to hold on to that power. They want to make it clear that they still have some place ultimately in the land of Egypt. But secondly, because in doing so, they could please Pharaoh and grant him vain confidence. And I want us to notice really two verses that we find in the first two plagues or in the first sign and in the second. What you find in Exodus chapter 7, verses 11 through 12, it says this, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. You'll notice that Pharaoh's first response to this sign was that he would go and get the people that possessed the most power, the most authority inside of the land of Egypt, that he went to the magicians so that they could perform these things, and ultimately, I'm convinced, set his mind a bit at rest. If my magicians can do this, then perhaps it is that I'm not up against an insurmountable force. So Exodus 7, 11 through 12, again, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But I want us to pay really close attention to Exodus 7, 22, because I think it gives the real heartbeat behind the magicians and also Pharaoh in the midst of these plagues. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So because of this, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God, I am convinced, is using the magician's weak, frail power as a means to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's saying, look, your little false gods can do a semblance of this. And Pharaoh takes this as a comfort and says, oh, well, my magicians are able to summon some frogs. And since they're able to summon some frogs, clearly this is really not a one-sided battle. They have some power, some authority. I've got a dog in this fight, if you will. And so what you find is they're laboring to do this, to hold on to the power that they believe they have. And they're also doing it as a means, I am convinced, to show Pharaoh that there still is this power and God is ultimately using it as a means to continue to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, you'll notice in this text that they utterly fail. So what can we glean from this attempt and failure? First, again, we recognize they were performing these signs. It was surprising to them. I am convinced that it was surprising to them that they failed. That the mark, the interesting portion of the finger of Godness upon this is not just that God plagued the lands, but that God removed all of the powers of the magicians to recreate it. No longer do they have power and ability to do this any longer. God has stayed their hand and stayed their hand really throughout the entirety of the plague account. And so we recognize 
recognized that they were performing signs, that they turned the staff into a serpent, that they turned water into blood, that they summoned frogs upon the earth. But God essentially says, no more. And so since they were actually performing signs, what, what would then restrain them in their attempt here? We understand again that all, every ounce of power, both internally and expressed, has to be granted by God himself. No one has power in and of themselves, brothers and sisters. If we can go back to even the narrative of the burning bush, God alone is self-sufficient. Every single creature is dependent upon the power of God. The fact that our heart is beating is because God has granted it. The fact that there are wicked men doing wicked things to this very day, it's happening because God is granting them breath. And so we see this power and authority being displayed. And so every sign they performed, they ultimately performed by the very permission of God Almighty. But here God essentially says, I will permit it no longer. Listen to what Matthew Henry says concerning this. God has the devil in a chain and limits him both as a deceiver and as a destroyer. Hitherto he shall come, but no further. The devil's agents, when God permitted them, could do great things. But when he laid an embargo upon them, though but with his finger, they could do nothing. The magician's inability in this less instance showed whence they had their ability in the former instances, which seemed greater, and that they had no power against Moses, but what was given them from above. That this proclamation is one that says, all of your power, all of the demonic forces that are behind all of your activity, I have taken away every ounce of their power. No longer will they be permitted to lay a hand upon my place. No longer will they be able to even showcase their power in a lesser form. God silences them. Now, that does lead us to ask a question, why would God draw the line at gnats? Why not blood? Why not the frogs? Why is it that we are at this third point and as we're at this third point that, that he then decides no more. This is the line that I'm going to draw. And I'm convinced that the primary reason that he does this is because of the symbolics of it. That sin is able to be committed and multiplied by mere men. That uncleanness is generally a mark of mankind. And even if you think about it with the perspective that it's not just men committing these things, but it's demonic forces behind them, the blood taught of sin, which Satan has much to do with. And then you go further and you say, well, the frogs taught of uncleanness, which if we go forward into Revelation 16, you'll notice that it is from the mouth of the beast that these unclean spirits like frogs flow forth. And so there's very clear correlation, if you will, between sin and the demonic. There's a very clear correlation between the uncleanness of the land and the demonic. But brothers and sisters, the reality is the gnats taught the curse and the curse belonged to God. They were not permitted to interfere or to play with that, which was demonstrating the fact that God was the the author and he was the authority over the curse. A.W. Pink beautifully puts it this way, turn water into blood and bring forth frogs they might by God's permission. But when he withheld permission, they were impotent. Thus it is with Satan himself. His bonds are definitely prescribed by the Almighty and beyond them he cannot go. Death he can inflict by God's permission and uncleanness he can bring forth freely as the magicians illustrated in the first two plagues. But with the curse, which the dust becoming lie so plainly speaks of, 
He is not allowed to tamper with. He is not the author of the curse. He is a subject of the curse and he has absolute no ability to interfere with it. And so I'm convinced the reason you have this hard and fast line drawn at this particular sign is because of the very symbolics of it. Sin certainly being demonstrated, uncleanness being demonstrated, but the curse belongs to the living God who cursed the land, who cursed the serpent and ultimately who cursed man as well. And so they have absolutely no right to interfere. And so God draws a hard and fast line and says, you will go no further. And then there is this confession from them, this loud, loud confession as they see that they no longer can reproduce signs, whether they be grand or minor, they cannot in any form reproduce this. Their proclamation is, this is the finger of God. Now let's build this out really quickly. First, this is not a confession of faith by the magicians. This is a recognition of deity that they're saying there is something supernatural about this God over and against all of ours, that he has the ability not only to perform signs, but to stay all power, to prevent us from even aiming to reproduce this. And so first it is a confession of their inferiority. They are recognizing in this moment that they are mere man and they serve mere creatures. Again, we recognize that the the false gods of Egypt had actual forces behind them, that this power was not innate within the magicians. Instead, they were drawing it from elsewhere. And so this confession of inferiority is not just a confession that they are mere men, but a confession that goes further and recognizes that the creatures they serve are just that creatures under the authority and on the leash of God Almighty. Secondly, it is a confession of their defeat. They recognize from this point forward that they have no dog in this fight. They cannot participate in this battle any longer. And if you think of the motions, if you think of the three sets of three that works its way throughout the Exodus, God is throughout each and every one of them displaying his power and dominion by conquering various foes and the first ones to be laid in the ground are the magicians. This is the finger of God. We cannot reproduce this. Thirdly, it is a recognition of the God of Israel and that he has come to get his people. Matthew Henry beautifully puts it this way. Sooner or later, God will extort even from his enemies an acknowledgement of his own sovereignty and overruling power. God will not only be too hard for all opposers, but will force them to own it. That there is a moment where they will confess that this is the finger of God. That there is a moment where they will demonstrate, they will make it known that not only have they been conquered, but God will draw from their lips a recognition that they have been conquered. Now, so you see this confession being made. They don't have the power and ability any longer. The the line has been drawn. A curse is not for them to touch or to trifle with. And then you see this confession. This is the finger of God. Well, let's understand what it means. The simple profession that this is the finger of God. First, the finger of God throughout scripture identifies God's authority and authorship. Just to give you two simple verses here. Psalm 8, 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's a simple proclamation. We understand, brothers and sisters, that God created the world by his very words, ex nihilo, from nothing. But as the psalmist is meditating upon the works of God, he recognizes the authorship, if you will, of God in all things. He's recognizing that God is the creator, that he is the author, and he has authority over all of the heavens. Exodus 
Exodus 31, 18, a bit later in our book, he says this, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Again, a loud proclamation that this is God's authorship and it is under God's authority. As he is giving it, he is demonstrating that this belongs to me. I am the author. I am the one who has authority over these. And so that simple statement of the finger of God carries two, two concepts there, which is it's God's authorship and God's authority. And then secondly, the finger of God is used to show forth his power to do two things, to destroy and to deliver. The first occurrence that we find in scripture is actually found in our text this morning in Exodus eight nineteen. The proclamation is this, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said, which means the way that we understand this statement throughout the rest of history, we need to take from our text today. That what's being conveyed here is that the true and living God has come for two purposes, to conquer Egypt and to deliver his people. And both will come to fruition. That the concept is that God is the all-authoritative, powerful one. He is the author of both conquest and deliverance, and he is here to execute that. Now, we go a bit further in the text to ask the question, well, is this the only time that this is used in this way? Well, no, perhaps the most prominent place that we can see this played out in a visual form is in Daniel chapter five. We see this same occurrence in the Babylonian captivity. Daniel chapter five, verse five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. He recognized as he had just blasphemed the the instruments that were used for temple worship that God was coming and God was coming to destroy and to conquer because he has profaned the glory of God and given God's glory to the gods of silver and gold and brass. And so he comes and he demonstrates, I'm coming for the purpose of conquest. If you need further clarity, we find this in Daniel chapter 5, verse 24 through 28, where Daniel comes to interpret the dream or or interpret the sight. He says this, then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed, meme, meme, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter, meme, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. If you would hearken back just for a moment to the examination of the first hardening of Pharaoh's heart, one of the key notes of this is that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart would make his heart heavy, and heavy particularly on the scales that would indicate that Pharaoh was not a righteous man. You see quite a similar picture here in this proclamation. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So to summarize, in this we really see three major things. The destruction of a kingdom, the guilt of the rulers, and the plundering of that nation. That when the finger of God shows up, it's essentially a proclamation that the days of this kingdom's successes and victories have been numbered, and by the conclusion of it, the entirety of the land will be plundered. Is this not exactly what we see play out in the land of Egypt? That by the time we finish the plague's account, this simple profession of the magicians will all come to fruition. The magicians have made the loud proclamation that this is the finger of God. And even as we make our way into the Babylonian captivity, it means that judgment has come upon the nation and that God will plunder it and plunder it completely. Now, if that is not sufficient for us, let's see what happens when we turn to the pages of the New Testament. In particularly, Luke 11. Notice what it says 
In Luke eleven fourteen through 20, you'll, you'll probably pick up on the key words. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against him, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, that come upon you is not a showing up for a cordial conversation. That coming upon you is showing up for conquest. And all throughout Scripture, we find the finger of God, this coming of God as a destroyer and also as a deliverer, loudly proclaiming the fulfillment of that. Because the central theme of the finger of God is not first and foremost that he will deliver his people from Egypt. It's not first and foremost that the the Babylonians would be judged. It is first and foremost, again, that Satan will eat the dust of the ground, that he will bear in him the curse, and not just the eating of the dust, but the crushing of the head. And so when we enter into the New Testament, and Jesus lays claim to this statement and says, that thing the magicians thought about in Exodus 8, that belongs to me. I'm the one who conquers. I'm the one who employs the power of the finger of God. And so when he's making his way to conquer Satan's kingdom, if you will, in the pages of the New Testament, he hearkens the minds of all of his listeners back to Exodus Exodus 8 and says, the finger of God has come upon this place. And in its conclusion, you will notice the very same things that occur in, in, in Egypt and in Babylon. Christ is the one who by the finger of God binds the strong man and plunders him. If you look at Luke 11, 21 through 22, the conclusion of our previous text we just read, when a strong man, by the way, just for clarity, the strong man there is not making reference to Christ in that first phrase. It's making reference to the enemy. It's making reference to Satan himself. So it says this, when a strong man recognizing the strength of the enemy, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. That is to say, you're not getting to his goods. You're not plundering the house while the the strong man is there and is physically capable of protecting his home. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. The finger of God is this loud proclamation that God is able in his power and his might to conquer any foe just by his finger. By the smallest portion of his strength, he lays waste all of his enemies. But what we must note is in his laying waste of all of his enemies, he is simultaneously delivering. He is plundering, as this text says. In, the, in Babylonian, in, in Daniel chapter five, we see him bringing the Babylonians out. In Egypt, we see him bringing the Israelites out. He's demonstrating his power and authority to redeem and to conquer, which leads us to the simple question. We know of it in the Exodus account. In the Exodus account, he does so by continuing through the plagues. He does so by making known his power and authority. And ultimately, you will see every single Hebrew boot touch the promise or touch the other side of the sea. But going forward, we would ask the question, well, how does Christ then accomplish this? There does not seem to be great warfare. If you're paying close attention to the New Testament, you'll ask the question, well, where's the battle? 
Well, the battle is actually quite clearly laid out that it's the cross of Christ in and of itself. As we've already heard read in our call to worship this morning, Colossians 2.15 says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Is this not a mirror image of what we see the Lord saying in Luke 11, 21 and 22? When a strong man fully armed guards his own place, his goods are safe, but when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, disarming Satan and all of his power. And he is laid waste to ultimately leading to the point where there could be a dividing of the spoils, a ransacking of his kingdom. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ does. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. John 12, 32, perhaps the loudest uh, statement that we find in the New Testament concerning this, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, that the finger of God has come upon the kingdom of Satan, not just the kingdom of Egypt, not just the kingdom of Babylon, but upon the kingdom of Satan himself, the kingdom of God has come upon it and it will be laid waste too. Which I think gives us a final conclusion. Who will make this confession then? The reality is that each and every one of God's enemies will make the confession that they have been conquered. We see this most clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Speaking of Christ after his earthly ministry and resurrection. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That all those who are conquered by this finger of God, by the Lord Jesus Christ and his work, they will all give a confession before him that he alone is the true and living God, that he alone is Lord of all the earth, that he alone has dominion and power and authority over the sea, over the creatures of the sea, over the dry land, over the heavens, over every living being. They will make that profession. Now, what I find most satisfying, if you will, about this text in Exodus 8 is that this is the finger of God is the final words recorded of the Egyptian magicians they will not speak again. Their final confession is that this is the true and living God. In the midst of their judgment, in the midst of their continued rebellion, God sees fit as to stay their mouths any longer in this account so as to make it clear that the final profession of all of his enemies will be, this is the finger of God, that he alone is all powerful. And brothers and sisters, it is true that the last recorded words of all those who rebel against Christ, their final words will be, Jesus Christ is Lord. But if we could speak perhaps of his church, all of God's people continue to make the same confessions. The people of God say, this is the finger of God. We see this in the Exodus, we see this in Babylon. We see it to this very day. The finger of God has come upon the land that the kingdom of Satan is being plundered and conquered actively to this very day, that he has been bound, that the strong man is ultimately defeated. He's eating the dust of the earth, that his head has been crushed. And every single time a saint makes it into paradise, he does so after trampling underneath his feet the Christ-conquered serpent. And so what is the confession then of God's people throughout the remainder of their lives and into, uh, and into eternity? All of God's people will continue to make the same confession, but as those not who have been conquered, but as those who have been delivered. Listen to the proclamation that we find in Revelation 19, 1 through 3, about being delivered from the principalities and powers. Revelation 19, 1 through 3, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments 
are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever. Further, we go on to confess, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56, it says this, that when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. These are songs that will never leave the lips of the saints. There are no final words for the people of God. They go on confessing endless and eternal truths that God is the one who is able to conquer, that God is the one who is able to save, that he has conquered sin and death, that he has delivered his people from lifelong slavery to fear, that as you make your way through the greater and and more beautiful exodus of freedom from sin and death, we go on singing that Exodus 15, that loud proclamation of praise of deliverance that we find post-exodus is one that we sing not temporarily, but eternally. Eternally, that the lips of the people of God will sing forevermore. And we rejoice in the fact that the strong man has been bound. But brothers and sisters, the sweetest point of rejoicing is that the final words of the conquered is Jesus Christ is Lord. But there are no final words for the people of God. We go on singing, we go on proclaiming, we go on rejoicing in the fact that our enemies have been defeated and that God in his boundless, infinite grace as a demonstration of his power so that his mercy and his goodness might be displayed for us to us forevermore, that we go on proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together.